0: listening to the jersey guys podcast the show that talks about hard rock heavy metal aor and west coast music in-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap so settle in and turn it up now here are your hosts tom and mark
1: Hey everyone, this is Mark Ballow from the Jersey Guys Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, my co-host and I, Tom Coyne, have a special guest today, and that's Ben Jackson from the band Crimson Glory. This was a great conversation. Ben was an original guitar player in the band. Uh, he actually started the group with drummer Dana Burnell. So we talk a little bit about the band's early days, how they formed. We talk about the band's four albums. And we also go into Ben's solo career, and we also touch on the time that Crimson Glory spent with Todd LaTorre as their singer uh, just before he joined Queensryche. So we cover a lot of stuff in this interview. It was a really good one, so we hope you guys are going to enjoy it. So let's get right to it. Hey, everybody, this is Mark from the Jersey Guys podcast. I'm here as always with my co host Tom Coyne, and we're bringing you a brand new episode today. Uh, today, we have special guest Ben Jackson from Crimson Glory. Hey, Ben, how are you doing? Hey, how are you guys doing? Excellent. i doing great. Good. Uh, Tom, good. I know, Tom, this is a, a real good one. Tom was uh, really happy about getting to uh, talk to you and uh, talking about Crimson Glory. So, this is going to oh, be a good real good one hear. for us. Yeah, me too.
0: I go back with you guys awesome. from uh, the inception of the first record before it actually even came out. Really? Uh, yeah. yeah. I, my, uh, my buddy Phil Benedetto owned a record store in Brooklyn in, um, in the 80s and 90s. And a promo of the record had come in before it was released. And I remember the two of us, we were just talking about this the other day, and, and he looked at the cover and we turned it around, looked at the band, and we both said, this has to be good. So <laughs> it's uh, a 35-year-old uh, uh, relationship with the band, and uh, glad yeah. to have you aboard. Really appreciate you giving us your time.
2: Um, no no problem. My pleasure.
0: So I wanted to ask, you know, there's so many things that I know about the band and so many things that I'm unclear about. Um, yeah. I, I, I know the inception, was, was you and Dana, or is that true?
2: Yes, yeah.
0: It was originally um, called Piercing Arrow and then Beowulf. Uh,
2: you know, there. that was the name of our first high school band Dana and I had. It was called Pierced Arrow. And, um, you know, we had a few other guys from high school in and out of that band. And But Dana and I always seemed to remain. We were kind of the same two guys that always just wanted to jam together. But we had a few guys in and out. And after a couple of years of doing that, um, the band changed the name to Beowulf. And shortly after that, um, we met John Drenning up there at a rehearsal um, facility where we used to all rehearse next to a few other bands in the same complex. And we heard John playing through the door of a closed room one day. He was on the other side of that door ripping the guitar, and we we hadn't seen him yet. We just heard him, and we go, who's that in there? We got to see who this is. Knocked on the door, and we go, hey, you know, the guitar player in our band currently, you know, isn't really probably going to be with us. You know, we're we're not really liking them that much. but Why don't you come over and play with us? Dana and I invited John in. And And at the time, Dana and I were were 18 about that time. And we had been playing together since we were 15. Okay. And, um, you know, we both started playing together. We lived in the same neighborhood and started playing together. We were about 15 years old, just learning Ted Nugent songs and Alice Cooper songs and, you know, learning our chops. By the time we invited John in our band, we were eighteen and he was sixteen and Dana and I were, you know, had gotten quite good by that time and our band was pretty tight. And um John was a young guy and he had incredible guitar chops, but hadn't really played in a, a tight, you know, unit of a band yet. And he was looking to get in a band, so he was excited, you know, we asked him in. After John came in, Jeff came next. So uh, he was another guy we knew through the high school crowd and When John first joined Dana and I, we had a different bass player. But um, after a few months, you know, we we invited Jeff in That made up the core of the musical, the musical lineup of the band anyway. And the original singer that we had at that point, too, didn't really work out. And it came to the four of us kind of going, hey, we need a singer. Who can we get? And Dana's sister actually was dating this guy from from our school, too. And his name was Midnight. And he wasn't really, uh, so much of a heavy metal guy or a rocker, but he was more kind of a folky performer that would play some, some of the school weekend pool parties and stuff. He'd always be out playing his acoustic and singing, going to California by Zeppelin, stuff like that. And he was really good at the Pink Floyd stuff. And we thought, man, this guy's got an amazing voice. Maybe we should see if he can play and sing in our band or if he even wants to. And so we brought him out and auditioned him and he was just turned out to be a, Shining diamond there, you know. He, he was, he started singing uh, all the songs that we were doing by the Scorpions or whoever, Def Leppard and Crocus and all the stuff we used to cover when we were teenagers. And we're like, can you try this, Midnight? Can you try this? And he was singing them all very well. We're like, okay, we have something here.
1: So he wasn't into that type of music at all.
2: Um, you know, he got into it as we sort of introduced him to it because John and I really liked, you know, Priest and Def Leppard and Accept and Scorpions and and Dana did too and I'm you know we were we were covering a lot of that stuff and Ozzy songs and and uh, some Black Sabbath songs you know from the D.O.A. We were just playing all kinds of things that we liked. But, but Midnight really wasn't that kind of singer. But he he quickly you know grabbed right onto it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, uh,
2: shortly after that anyway, we sort of abandoned the whole idea to do cover songs. I mean, shortly after we got Midnight in, we all kind of said. Hey, you know, if we're going to get anywhere, we don't want to be just playing covers in the local bars. We, let's, let's do all originals. Let's take this to the, to the proper level. And we just, you know, all of a sudden one day just said, we're not, we're never going to play a cover song again. That's it. We're just going to work on our originals. And that's what we did. What year was that? Probably around 83 or so. Okay. 84.
0: Yeah what was the writing process? Because that first album to me was really very different writing wise than the bands of that era. It's one of the things that I really grabbed onto is that the songs were so mature and different than yeah, everything well, else of the time.
2: Thank you very much. Um, you know, I think we were influenced a lot by Iron Maiden and, you know, we used to cover a lot of the songs from the, from the second and third album from Killers and Number of the Beast, and and we would do uh some some Judas Priest songs. We used to do like Solar Angels, and and we like stuff like that. And the first Dio album was a gem. And at that time that we were writing the first Crimson album, we were all huge fans of that Holy Diver album. And I think some of our influences that, that were coming from these Priest albums and Iron Maiden albums and and Dio albums. we're we're sort of coming through in our music a little bit but of course we have you know our originality going into it too but i listened back to the first album and i sort of i sort of remember i think we got a little influence there from maiden or a little influence there from dio or something
0: who wrote the song Asriel? that's always like a a song that to this day anytime i put it on i just lose my mind
2: yeah uh i'm Pretty sure it was um, Midnight and John started coming up with the the basic theme and, and the root parts of the song. And then we all got together in the room and, and um you know, arranged it and tried it several different ways until we liked it as a band. And I think Jeff was in on some of the riffs in it, too. I think I think those are the three guys credited for writing the song, John, and Jeff and Midnight. You know, we all sort of we get together almost uh, back when we were young, we get together like three, four nights a week and just jam hours on end and all these songs that we were trying we would try in many different ways and try this arrangement and that arrangement till we really thought it was clicking in my feeling i think we were all kind of putting this music together as a band a lot even though sometimes you know certain riffs might be coming from john and jeff and they were they were sort of the dominant writing guys in that early period they were writing a lot of the music and and, and um midnight was writing majority of the of the lyrics and everything where did the and i always the... wanted to contribute to the writing too and we did where we could you know where sometimes uh, i think on the first album i had a credit on one song on the second album i had a writing credit on one song it was uh it was a really a combination of everybody and the chemistry of it all though
0: where did the idea of the masks come from
2: um, one day, we were getting ready to do a photo shoot, and um, Warren Wyatt, the manager, and John Drenning were uh, en route to my, my apartment to pick me up, and and they just they, they hit some costume shop on the way down or stopped to to buy something, get batteries or something, and they saw this mask, and they, they came over and walked in with it, and I said, hey, we got this idea. And it was kind of funny. I was just hanging around the apartment with my girlfriend at the time. She was a, a pretty girl, and they were like, we want to maybe do something with this mask in the band, but let's do a test photo shoot too. Let's get her to wear the mask. And Warren, Warren, the manager had my girlfriend modeling the mask and wearing like a leather jacket and all this stuff. And and we did like a whole photo shoot with her for the first like day. And then we're like, then we're like, let's try one next week and and we're going to get four more of these. And we're going to do a whole band shoot. At first it was just kind of like a sudden out of nowhere idea. And then it just grew into something that we decided we would do, you know, to give some theatrics to the band's image.
1: Wow. So it's as simple as that, just something that a uh, spur of the moment thing.
2: Yeah. They were on their way to my house and stopped at some store on the way and they saw this mask and they're like, hey, grab that. <laughs> and they came over to my place and you could tell they were kind of like dreaming up the ideas. they were walking up the driveway. They came in with, hey, we're, we think we got an idea. I'm like, oh, yeah. OK. <laughs>
0: so, it, just- it definitely <laughs> added. To the again, from somebody that came into the band from the ground floor, it, it definitely added a mystique to the band. As as you know, yeah, maybe 35 years down the road, as we are now, we look at it and say, What was that all about? But at that time, it definitely, I, I know myself as a fan, a guy that hung out in a record store that was massively popular back in the mid 80s. It yeah. definitely grabbed people's attention in, in a good way.
2: Well, good. That's what we were hoping for. I think we might have got a few chuckles from people like, what are they serious? You know, but for the most part, I think people took it seriously and thought it was a cool idea.
0: It, it was. At, at least I thought so. <laughs> Thank you, man.
1: Now, what would the story about that that I've always heard is that you know after you guys had the full face masks on and you you did touring and everything like that, you realized that hey, this is a little, they were a little bit hot to wear, and you kind of modified yeah. them a little bit for the the following album, right?
2: Exactly. Yeah, we were sweating under those things terribly, especially Dana being the drummer. He was back there sweating so bad, and snot would be running out of his mask and dripping down. <laughs> <laughs> we got to do something about this. <laughs> so, yeah, we decided to cut them probably for that reason, because they were uncomfortable and weird to wear these whole full face masks on tour. Yeah. But, but when we did cut them, it turned out to be a cool thing because everybody then decided, OK, we're each going to take a full face mask and draw out a slightly different cutting pattern. And we'll take blade razor blade and cut it. And each guy will have like a slightly different one. So we did. And you can if you really look at them on transcendence, you can see each guy's is a little different.
1: Yeah, it kind of gave me a little bit of
0: a uniqueness to each each uh, member.
2: Yeah, where on the first album they were all just pretty much the same mask.
0: So what I Close wanted to, to ask you is something that's again has, has been on my mind for literally decades. The label Roadrunner. How how did you find that label? How did that label treat the band? In your opinion?
2: Um, well. You know, we were working on the first album at Morrisound in Tampa, Morrisound Recording. And this is also the studio where Sabotage did their first album or two, on Sirens and Dungeons, I think. And um, through through hanging out at Morrisound, we met this guy named Dan Johnson from Par Records here in Florida. And and Dan had a relationship with Case Wessels and Roadrunner over there in the Netherlands. So we, we first signed with Dan Johnson here in, in Florida to his... Local label called Par Records. And it was just uh, from there he he got it, you know, the deal for us for it to be released in Europe on Roadrunner. And um, yeah, they treated us pretty good. The first couple times we went over there to tour in the Netherlands, I remember one time um, Mr. Wessels uh, met us and took us all out to dinner at some cool place and we all hung out. It was an exciting time for us. You know, we were over in Europe as. 20 year olds. You know, we got this new album out that everyone's really lit up about. Right. Yeah, it was a pretty cool time.
1: Now, you talked about, uh, you mentioned Sabotage a minute ago. Was, is that a band that you had any type of relationship with uh, as far as, you know, the, the members and everything?
2: Um, a little bit. I mean, we met them here and there in and out of Moore Sound Studio because they were recording stuff at Moore Sound and uh, we were too at that time. And you know, Jim Morris was engineering and producing them, and was also engineering and producing us. So I, we'd meet them, and I mean, but I used to even go see them play um, concerts back when they were called Avatar, and they were playing, you know, out in front of shopping malls on flatbeds and stuff. So oh wow, I would I wouldn't say we really knew them really well at first, but but we we knew who each other were. I mean, when I. They, only, they lived, I think, in the Clearwater area, which is about an hour north of where we were all living in Sarasota. And sometimes, you know, we drive up there to see them. And, you know, we definitely knew who they were. Their album, Sirens, came out, you know, maybe a year or so before our first album. So 83, we,
0: I think that record came out.
2: Yeah. So we, we had seen them a couple times locally live even before see, hearing their record. So we kind of knew these guys are heavy duty. They're pretty cool. And then the record came out, sirens, and we got our hands on it. I remember Dana picked up a copy and I used to roommate with Dana and we were listening to it a lot. And then sometimes when we'd go up at Morrisound Sound and be recording, you know, we'd we'd bump into them in and out. One time like we were even at Dan Johnson's house that the owner of Par Records and um Chris and his wife, Crystal Lee and his wife, came by Dan's house and was just hanging out there while we were also hanging out there. So we met a few times here and there. Actually, now you know. Later in years, I've I've met John Oliva many times, so I would call him a friend. You know, not that not that we're you, you know real close, but but I know him. Whenever I see him around, no, oh, it's always a pleasure to see him. He's he's a
0: madman. Well, it's interesting because Florida, Florida had two. In retrospect, I I look back at the '80s, and there were about maybe 10, 10 or eleven bands out of the states that were real game changers in in terms of coming up with material that was markedly different than anything that was ever done before. I mean, a large amount of bands in the eighties were replicas of the seventies, which I was a child of the seventies. So I knew that. You too. Right. So (coughs) there were only about, and I, this is an exhaustive search in my mind, about 10 or 11 bands in my opinion, in, in that era that were unique and two of them came out of Florida, which was your band and and Savatage. And me and Mark were actually talking about this before we went on the air because we're both big Sabotage fans. And he had said to yeah. me, "I wonder if there's and me any, too. yeah, there's any crossover between the two bands out of Florida."
2: Well, one thing you know is John's Honor is the keyboard player who played on our first on, on Transcendence and, and toured with us extensively a lot. And he also played keyboards with John Lee was and played with sabotage on you know he was kind of in and out of their lineup a couple times i think there might be a couple of their videos where you see him so so we had that in common the same keyboard player and we had the you know the more sound connection and actually uh chris oliva and i are the same age uh, we were both born in 63 maybe a couple months apart so if he was still alive today he'd be my age 58 um you know we uh so, yeah, we, we, we met them a few times and there was a little connection. I, I definitely respected them and thought they were really cool. I thought they were the coolest all original metal band from our area at that time. I'm like,
0: yeah, they were, you know, they, they really were original. They
2: just had something, man. They yeah. had that something. Then there was a couple other bands in our area. One, you know, like Rocks Gang and Stranger and they, they were kind of, you know, doing, doing cool things too, but, but not quite like Sabotage. Sabotage had something a little, little more a little more special
0: yeah we're both big stranger fans too so i'm very uh in tune with them but they they, oh yeah me too i love stranger back in the day yeah
2: they were a lot of fun to go see totally
0: they they just were you guys
2: live around here back in the day or
0: no we're uh, mark is from Um, jersey i'm from brooklyn new york i live in jersey now
2: how'd you how'd you end up finding out about stranger just
0: uh, because that's what I—that's <laughs> what I've done my whole life. <laughs> find every obscure band on the face of I do not
2: know if they were just a Florida phenomenon. Well, oh, they are. They actually yeah, they are. But know. that's
0: just. But you know, they. I mean, have, everybody
2: in Florida loved them. You know,
0: I, they were huge in Florida. But they did yeah. have. There was one album that they put out that did get like a uh, a big distribution out of yeah. all this stuff. But yeah, yeah,
2: it, it, think on Epic. Yeah,
0: Epic. Exactly. Right.
2: Yeah.
0: But they they were a a terrific band. But um, I kind of want to move on to the second record now, which was a huge bump up in production, correct?
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: If you could tell us a little bit
2: about that. You know, when we did the first album at Morris Sound, um, Dan Johnson from Par Records was the producer, and Jim Morris was more like the engineer. When we went and did the second album, Transcendence, um, Jim Morris was acting as engineer and producer um we weren't really having dan on board as producer and the budget was considerably larger i think the first album we had a budget of maybe around thirty thousand, and the transcendence album budget was around 50 and um you know and we had grown a bit And, and the talent register you know we had you know the songwriting was getting a little slicker and a little better and our uh, studio experience and how to go in and track and do things and bring it all together was kind of getting a little better. So these just may be the things that explain the the, the slightly higher level there. You
0: know. And what was the extent? We, we of the were pretty touring?
2: young. We are pretty young and green when we put out the first album. By the time the second one came out, we we had had a we got a little uh, little experience under our belt.
0: What was the extent of the touring on the second record? Because I and that's it's a question I wanted to ask you because I don't recall you guys. Did you do East Coast dates?
2: Yeah, um, I'll tell you what. When we when the Transcendence album came out, I think it was November. It was just about November first, yeah, eighty eight. Um, I can't really remember what we did right or, right around that fall of eighty eight, but I know when nine. We probably did some dates then, right, when it came out. But when when April or so came in 89, we went over to Europe and did a bunch of big festivals, like the Metal Hammer Festival, the Shock Festival, where we were opening for Ozzy, Queensryche, and many others. But while we were over there doing those festivals, we were also put on the Doro tour, and we were her opening band for, like, several weeks all over Europe. And that was a fun tour, because Doro was basically Warlock, you know. and right. Although she wasn't calling it Warlock anymore, and you know we were we were on a a tour as her support act, and played with her for probably a good few weeks all over, you know many of the European countries. So that was that was a good experience for us, and that was in I think um like I said, springtime of '89, and then in the fall of '89 we went out in October I think it began, and we did a complete North American tour for Transcendence. Um, I don't think we played every state, but we did a lot of them. And um, we played New Jersey. We played New York. We played, you know, a lot of this, a lot of those northern states up there. Did you guys we hit play? We, uh, we played Lamores uh, in, in Brooklyn. Okay. Uh, when we played Lamores in Brooklyn, we opened up for EZO, the Japanese band oh, on wow. that gig. Uh, when we played over at Club Narcissus in Boston, right, we opened up we opened up for uh, Lizzie Borden that night. And then when we played the living room in Rhode Island, we opened up for Lizzie Borden. So those were a few northeastern dates where we opened up for other bands. But pretty much the whole Transcendence North American tour was was us headlining, you know, metal clubs and some smaller theaters where we would have you know other bands opening for us.
0: Right. So you and guys then, and Lizzie Borden it must have been a, an interesting show because there there yeah. were a lot of similarities.
2: Yeah, that was a fun, fun couple of shows we did two of them right in Rhode Island and then Boston.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that. I, I think uh, a friend of mine actually said uh, something that he, he compared kind of Midnight's vocals is having a little bit of that Lizzie Borden style yeah. in there.
2: Yeah, you see that. And then when we did the Transcendence tour, we 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 went up and did a, a gig in Toronto, Canada. And when we were when we made our way over to LA and the and the other side of the country, and we were doing. Seattle and down through LA and then we went down into Mexico and did a show in Tijuana. So it was it was pretty, pretty big tour. And then when that tour ended um, in mid-December, right near the end of the, the year, the last couple weeks in December, we went over to Japan and did a couple weeks over there.
0: I would imagine so, you went so, you went over really big over there, right? Yeah, quite well. Yeah, I so can the, imagine.
2: The, the whole 1989 year was, was a pretty, pretty, probably the biggest, busiest year we ever had as far as out, you know, traveling places and touring and definitely uh, firing on all cylinders and just out there pushing hard. It was, it was a fun year.
0: So that takes us to album number three, which, um, as a, a diehard fan, I was not happy with when it came out 30 years after the fact, I've warmed up to it somewhat. I know you, you and Dana left the band at that point. Could you give us a little bit of, uh, what was going on at that point?
2: Um, you know, this, this always comes up. So I'm just going to say as it is, (laughs) um, near the end of that transcendence tour of 89, when we were doing the last couple months of the year, I just think, uh, there, were, there was a plan brewing in John's mind where he, he wanted to be the only guitar player for the next album. And they were even looking at the drum tech that was Dana's drum tech on the tour as being the new drummer. And I'm not really sure why they wanted to make that change because the band was really firing on all cylinders. Like I said, we were getting so good live. We were a well-oiled machine. The only one who was having any trouble at all on the Transcendence tour was Midnight because he was starting to get into a little bit of a drinking habit and and he'd have some great shows and he'd have some that weren't so great but the band was really doing great but right about as soon as that tour ended in 89 we we finished the last gig in texas on new year's eve 89 and then we got home from the from a long year of touring and it was only like two weeks into the month of january 1990 that i called jeff and was saying hey, let's get together. Let's start working on new songs for the next album. And he was kind of, you know, mumbling something about how the, I wasn't really needed. And I'm just like, huh, what? I was totally blindsided. I'm like, really? I mean, I kind of formed this band and invited all you guys in. Right. So he was just, you know, kind of letting me know and and that they were going to go ahead and do it. You know, and Jeff and him were going to write everything alone. And John was just going to be the only guitar player. And I'm just, I was a little bit taken back and it seemed like they they only not not only wanted to let me go but they wanted to let Dana go and replace him maybe they thought because we were such good friends and we started the whole thing that hey we can't fire one without the other and I don't know I what feel, they feel yeah yeah I don't know but I really get the feeling and I'm only being honest and I'm not trying to say any anything terribly negative but I get the feeling that it was just kind of something brewing in John's head that he wanted to make this kind of a change I think after the couple years of the band climbing and success from the release of the first one, then the second one, I think some of it all was starting to go to his head a little bit. You know, he was, you know, he's just, he's kind of an ego. He's always had a big ego and I think it was getting a little blown up and he was thinking, man, this is, you know, I'm, I'm the man, I'm the star of the show and I'm going to do change it any way I want and people will love it no matter what change I make. And uh, I just think it, it was a bad move on, on their part.
0: It was a bit, you know, I I always you know? looked at it. I didn't know whether it was a panic move because of the beginning of the shifting of the scene. But
2: Dude, I think, no, they kind of decided to do that before the scene even really shifted. Because,
0: wow, I never knew that. You know,
2: it was like they made that decision right in the last month of like 89. And then the first month of 90, they kind of told me. And I'm just like, wow, you know, crazy. So, you know. Dana and I right away started gathering people and trying to put together another project, you know. And then they they took a year, 1990, and wrote and recorded the Strange and Beautiful album, and it came out in 91. And, you know, people even interview me and say, hey, I heard that the reason you left is because you heard some of that material they were working on for the third album. You didn't really dig the style of it, so you decided to left. I'm like, no, I never heard anything of that album until it actually came out, was in the stores. Wow. And... You know, I never I didn't know what they were working on. All I know is they just didn't want to work on anything with me anymore. And I'm like, OK, so I got the album and listened to it. And, you know, I, I find some things about it that are very appealing and because I'm a I'm a I'm a music fan with a wide variety of tastes and I, I liked it. So but it was a huge departure from the band style that we had started in the path we were already sort of on. So it, it caught the fans way off guard and I can see why it wasn't really a big
0: Oh a did big it ever. success. <laughs> did I yeah, I can tell you
2: first I'm not saying it's a bad record. <laughs> no, I would it's, never it's, say it's that.
0: it's not, but what what it what it did to fans what? was just let the air out of the balloon because the
2: difference just not having Dana and I on board, the yeah. dropping the mask idea right. Turning the band into a twin guitar attack, kind of a prog metal band into right. sort of a Zeppelin-y, kind of a Cinderella-type band with, you know, sax solos and female backup singers. It just it was such a huge departure. Huge departure. And the fans didn't know what to think of it. And honestly, the, the weird thing is, is right after the record came out, they booked a little two-week or so um, tour in America here, some dates they were going to do in some clubs to support that new record. And the very first date they did in Tampa, I guess Midnight didn't have an extremely good show that night, and they fired him the next day, just for having one bad show. And then, and then it was it was really starting to be okay. Obviously, John's this is turning into a pattern here. John's kind of taking this band over. He thinks he can change it to anything he wants to, fire anybody he wants to, and it's still going to fly. And and it's just, and it really wasn't. And I, you know, like. Atlantic Records dropped the band probably six months after that record came out.
0: That record was a flop. Because at that yeah. point... And they
2: fired Midnight after the first show supporting the new record. And that was crazy. I yeah, mean, that, whatever problem he had, they should have tried to address it. In
0: I, 91, I was writing for three different magazines over in the UK. And the, the, the feedback on that record was awful. And not only from me, not only from the States. That was across the globe and, and yeah. it was really because the second record was a step up from the first record and the first record everybody loved the second record everybody adored and the anticipation was already there for the third record yeah. so when two core guys were out a uh, total change in not only style but like appearance and they, they just yeah. kind of came off like every other band and you guys yeah. what set you apart is. You weren't every other band.
2: I know. It almost seemed like they were looking at everybody else that was right. really doing well in the MTV, you know, realm, and they're just like, oh, let's try to be the next like Cinderella or White Lion or something. That's, Absolutely. You know, that's, I don't know, man. We sort of worked it out later, John, and, you know, wanted me to rejoin in 1998. He called me and said, we're working on a fourth album and we want you to rejoin. You know, we want it to be a twin guitar attack again because we can't even play the stuff from the first two albums with one guitar player anyway. I'm like, I'm like, no, I know. So, you know, at the, t- at the time when, when we, Dana and I left the band, I remember, uh, they were just kind of telling people just to save face, like, oh, they didn't, you know, it was sort of a, a difference in opinion and musical direction, so they decided to quit. And, and back then, I didn't even dispute that. People would ask me that, and I just went, yeah, yeah, I guess that's it, you know, because I didn't really want to tell people I was let go. It kind of felt bad. Yeah. but 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 years later it goes by and people ask me and i just i just tell it like it is no you know? and that
0: the honesty is appreciated because as, as a, a 35 year old uh 35 year long fan i didn't even know that i always assumed- yeah
2: you know i just feel like that we were sort of edged out hmm.
1: you know no we that was definitely the make- story i always heard too you know like when you listen to any interviews or you read anything it was always oh you didn't really like the direction the band was going in so we left but
2: yeah, they just, they just wanted it to sound good so they didn't look like bad guys, I guess. <laughs> I don't know.
0: <laughs> so if if we could talk a little bit about the fourth record, which I, I'm personally a huge fan of. Um, oh, thank you. What I didn't know was that Midnight was actually supposed to sing that record. I
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: If you could um, take John us down that road. John and
2: Jeff, uh, you know, they, I think they started talking again about maybe bringing the band back, and they were 97 or so. And before they even talked to me, John and Jeff, you know, they went and told Midnight that we're thinking about making another album, trying to get this band back up and running, and they wanted to do it with him. And he said, yes, he was game. And I guess uh, the story John gave me and Jeff, they, they said they they went to his house a couple times to try to pick him up or try to meet with him to get together and either talk about it or begin some writing. And they said every time they went to get him, he was either – Passed out drunk or just wasn't ready or something, something. And they just, they just kind of looked at it. The two of them looked at each other and said, man, this just isn't going to work. He's just, he's not up to it, you know, because bless his heart. We all love midnight, but after the transcendence album and the nineties hit his, his kind of drinking just sort of started spiraling and just kind of turned into something that plagued him for the rest of his life.
0: Yeah. I know. He gave, you, know? you know, there's some really weird it, it, interviews he just, out there
2: yes and, and he still had so much immense talent to sing and write and everything but he just wasn't wasn't grounded he didn't really have his feet planted firmly on the ground he was just too too kind of you know they could tell when they met with him this just this is just gonna be a crazy time if we try to do another record with him so so unfortunately um they decided not to do it with midnight and they they met with they met Wade I think they saw him. Singing out at some club with his band Lucian Black or John Sommer, and thought he would, was very exciting, could be a good singer for the band. By the time they actually got a hold of me, um, they already had Wade in the band and already had that album completely recorded.
0: And how so, did you get Dr. Kill drums in the mix of all this? I'll, I'll tell you,
2: and it's just. Um, they, they they were asking me to rejoin because they said, you know, we're putting out an album that's it's sort of similar to the old style with Twin Guitar Attack and Heavy Again, Prog Metal, although it sounds different with Wade, but it was, they told me we're going back to the old style and we want you to come back. And I think they even said because the label we're on over in Germany, Rising Force or Rising Sun Records, wants there to be as many original guys in it as possible to make it look good when the band returns. So... <laughs> You know, so they asked me to come back and then they had Wade in place and I met him and I went out to John's place on Anna Maria Island where they were mixing and working on the final touches of the record. And they're like, what do you think of this, man? I'm like, ah, I really like it. It's really good. And but to be honest with you, everything was already done and everything on that record is a drum machine. It's all, all programmed at John's you know, house. And and the only the only people that appear on that record are John, did all the guitars, Jeff did the bass the drums are a drum machine wade sang and there's a couple other backing singers like david van landing and and paul beach i think did some backing vocals but but that's the makeup of the band for that album steve wasn't steve wackles wasn't on the record and i wasn't on it either.
0: so why was he pictured on it i think cuz that- um
2: well right after they finished the record um and we're getting ready to release it. And actually, we're getting ready to make photo shoots and plan tours for the record. We found out Steve might be available to play with us and do the tour, the Astronomica tour that oh, yeah. he was interested in it. You know, when we knew Steve from back in the day and, and I was excited about that. So we, we talked to Steve and he said he wanted to join the band and go do the tour for the album, the Europe tour. And so he came down to Sarasota and did a bunch of photo shoots with us. And those photo shoots, one of them ended up on the back cover and we just listed him as a player on the record. And he was going to do the tour. We got together up in St. Pete, maybe once or twice. I don't even think John made it to those rehearsals. I think it was just me and Jeff and Wade went up and rehearsed with Steve Walkholes a couple of times. And it sort of seemed like he had a lot going on and, the tour was coming up pretty quick and I, I didn't even know if he was really going to be ready to get all the stuff ready. Cause he didn't know the songs that well. Right. And, and it was then decided that we would use another guy we knew from Sarasota named Jesse Rojas. And he was the drummer that went on tour with us. Okay. So, and we, you know, there was no hard feelings with Steve or anything. It just, it just turned out that he, he didn't actually play on the record. He was just pictured on it, and he didn't actually do the tour with us either. Another guy ended up doing the tour. Uh, his but,
0: presence did uh, bring a lot of attention to that release.
2: Of course. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think just having his name and Absolutely. face on it sure Absolutely. didn't hurt anything.
0: Yes. No, it, you know, did. it and, helped you
2: the, quite a bit, actually. Yeah, and the label knew that, and John, right. we all knew that. You know, We wanted him to do the tour, man. We were excited that we were going to have Steve playing with us on tour. And sure. For one reason or another, and I can't even nail it down exactly, it just didn't come together. I think, from what I remember, it just seemed like he was very busy and wasn't able to put in enough rehearsals to really make it, get together in time for the tour. I don't know. We, we had a couple rehearsals with him.
0: What was your up, feeling on that album? Were you, were you happy with it, with the material?
2: Um, yeah, I like it. I think it's pretty cool. All the songs are pretty heavy. Um, It, it kind of lacks some of the more passionate moments, obviously, that the first two albums have, Like because there's a cool song, Edge of Forever and "Sidonia." Those are a couple of the more, yes, you know, more of those kind of songs, like the more passionate, not as super heavy-duty songs, but... But on the, on the first albums, we had songs like Painted Skies and Burning Bridges, and they were very kind of like passion-filled, gave you goosebumps to listen oh, to absolutely. them. Oh,
0: absolutely. Very operatic. And, and, and,
2: and, and um, Astro didn't quite have anything that represented that. But some of the really heavy songs were done really well. They were really fun to play live, and, and it was really cool music. I think it was a little bit heavier than the first two albums, actually. Oh, yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and- uh, and Wade sounded, you know, nice. Wade
2: came across a little bit more like a, like a Rob Halford on that album.
0: You know who and, he always reminded me of in, in yeah. physical appearance and vocal? He reminded me a lot of Red Forrester.
2: Ah, okay, yeah, I see that.
0: Yeah, and that that's and
2: Wade's job on the record was really great too, and he was a blast on tour and did very well on the tour. No, he's a pro. But he is a pro, and I, I'm still very good friends with Wade to this day. We're super good friends and but um yeah on that tour or on that album it just, I like the album a lot it just it lacks some of that very passionate emotional content that the earlier albums did
0: yeah the the, hev- the heaviness of it was really good uh, Jeff Wood's bass sound was, I don't know how we got that bass sound it never quite.
2: It was really fat and really I had never really heard present. Anything quite for like band, that For a band with rock. twin guitars right. and a lot of a lot yeah. of stacked guitars and two guitar parts always going on, the bass just really slammed right through.
0: Yeah, it was like Jocko Pastorius with like a, a hundred Marshall stacks behind him.
2: I know, like I know. Incredible well, they, bass sound. John actually recorded that album in his basement, in his house on Anna Maria Island, on, a, on some pretty primitive gear. And yep. um, so that album didn't have quite the, the, the pristine production of a Mora sound production, but it still did sound pretty darn good in the bass the bass was sounded really good.
0: The bass was otherworldly; it really was. Yeah, he had an incredible sound on the, on that album. So, what I wanted to move on from there was uh, how you guys got hooked up with Todd Latore.
2: Okay. Well, I think after after the Astronomic tour in two thousand, we sort of like stepped away from each other again for like a good six years. I don't know why we always tend to do that, but. Um, it was around 2006. We we had Wade come back, and we went and did a couple shows with Wade. Or maybe, maybe it was, I don't know. I'm getting behind. 2006, we were invited to go over to Greece and do a show with Midnight. The all-original members, again, was called the Rockwave Festival. So we went and did that 2006 with Mid, and that was our last show with Mid. Because, again, it was kind of apparent that he just
0: wasn't really physically pull that's no, a really out. odd show you, you know the whole show so, is up on youtube if you yeah
2: yeah so we we sort of rebanded around that time around the cause of going over to do the rockway festival with the original band because they were really excited and wanted us to do it so we we sort of reformed with that goal in mind and then after it didn't go so well we were all like well we're back together we'll rehearse you know let's, let's get weighed back so we got weighed back in 2008 we did a few shows with Wade again. I think we teamed up with Vicious Rumors in Florida, did a couple gigs and we were having a little fun just kind of playing live again with Wade. And then, you know, that was around the time that midnight passed away. And, um, we had decided then that we were going to do a big tribute concert for midnight in in Atlanta at the Prague power festival. And it was 2009 that we did that. And, we were going to do a big, long set and have all the other singers from all the other bands on the whole weekend bill all come up and sing various Crimson songs. So although Wade was still our acting vocalist, we were we were doing, you know, maybe 20 songs and on every song. We had a different singer on, it, you know, or two singers, because I don't know if you guys heard anything about that show, but it was it was uh, the Prague Power Festival in 09. And we did a huge show to, to Tribute Midnight.
0: Oh, it's, it's actually on YouTube also yeah okay so so around
2: around that time then um our good friend matt laporte who was the guitar player for john oliva's pain and circle to circle and matt laporte um was a really huge fan of crimson glory and loved midnight and so when we did the uh power show matt Said I want to come and I want to be the third guitar player for Crimson Glory tonight because I loved Midnight so much and we had him do it. So Matt actually sat in a chair, kind of in the back, you know, and behind us, and he was doing like third guitar parts for us while John and I were doing the main stuff. But 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 Matt, while he, while he was coming to rehearsal with to play guitar with us um, for uh, to prepare for the Prog Power show. One day he brought Todd LaTorre down to rehearsal with him. He had this little guy with him. He's like, Hey guys, I'm bringing my, I'm bringing somebody down tonight. He's my secret weapon. We're like, Oh, okay. You know, whatever friend of yours is welcome. Bring him down. So he brought Todd down to our rehearsal where we were having a normal band rehearsal with Wade and Matt Laporte goes, You guys got to let this guy sing a couple songs. He's going to blow you away. We're like, Okay. So Todd sang a couple songs and we're like, Wow, he's amazing. He's really good. So. So we invited Todd to be one of the singers to sing at the Prog Power Tribute. Um, and he he was the only singer there that night that wasn't a singer in another band. I mean, Wade was our singer. Every other singer singing with us that night were singers from all the other bands that were playing Prog Power. And some of these were pretty well-known metal bands. Um, we had Rob Rock and all kinds of people singing. Todd was the only guy that we invited to sing that night who was actually a complete unknown, never sang with anybody. He was just a drummer
1: at that point, right?
2: He was a drummer, yeah. and That's what he he had been for several years, but he had some singing abilities, some great ones. We met him through Matt Laporte and decided to have him be one of the singers that night, and he came up to Atlanta with us, and he sang, and he was great. And somehow, over the next couple months after that gig, we we in the band all just kind of knew that Todd was going to be our next singer, you know? And, um, so we didn't, we almost hated to let Wade down at that point because we were sort of getting reactivated with him, but I don't know. I think it was 2010 early in that we made that decision that Todd was going to be the singer and we invited him to join the band and he came down and we started rehearsing and it was just, It was uh, very apparent that Todd could sing all of the Midnight catalog. You know, he could sing "Burning Bridges" and "Painted Skies" and "Lonely," and do those and make them sound, you know, very passionate. Where Wade couldn't really do some of those songs. You know, he he was great at many of the heavier songs like "Red Sharks" and "Eternal World" and "Mask of the Red Death" and all the "Dragon Lady." But some of the songs like "Burning Bridges" and painted skies i don't think we ever did those live when we toured with wade we just kind of realized they weren't really his cup of tea but when we brought todd in he could sing all that stuff and so it was a little exciting so you know we booked some tours in europe for 2011 and 12 to go showcase our new singer and everybody was just in love with him
1: now you guys brought the the mask back at that point
2: No, not really. I mean, all we did was uh, I think we did an encore each night where we would do Lost Reflection and um, Todd would wear a mask.
1: Oh, because I did see something on YouTube with Todd wearing a mask. Yeah,
2: I think. um, But when we did Lost Reflection, it's the kind of song where you don't even really see the band on stage. You only really see Todd. Like, I think I stand off to the side wings and I'm playing the clean guitar part. And our keyboard player is over on the other dyke side of the stage playing a little keyboards. But other than me me and the keyboard player, nobody's really playing. The drummer and the other guys are sort of back out of that situation. And Todd would sing Lost Reflection, but he'd be out on the stage with a spotlight on him, and it would just be like him. Oh, okay. And then there's a short piece in the end of Lost Reflection where the whole band pops in and does a little heavy thing that's only a few seconds long. So that's, that's the extent of the mask wearing. It was just Todd wearing it for lost reflection.
0: Oh, all right. So I felt when you had him, that could have been like another chapter of the band. I, I really was very yes. optimistic of of the future. Your thoughts on that?
2: Um, yes, definitely. I think we were all feeling that way. You know, after we went and did probably three or four visits to Europe, in 11 and 12, um, we all wanted to do a record with Todd and, and we, we started to write a couple new songs with him. And, uh, after maybe the fourth trip over there, I think we decided like it's time, it's time for us to stop going over there and doing these little two week Europe trips. You know, we're not going to be as a nostalgia act together. If we're going to do anything, keep this going. Let's make a new record. And we, we I think I was even the one that said, Hey, we get together on this night every week anyway. When we're preparing for a tour and everybody shows up every week. Let's get together this night, every week, and let's start writing. And they're all like, yeah, okay. And everybody can write stuff at home, too, and bring ideas in to show each other. But let's just set one night a week, and let's get together and write. And everybody was like, heck, yeah, let's do it. We're all motivated. And we came in, started doing it. And it, after only like a few weeks, John just kind of started coming late or not coming at all. And Todd was getting discouraged. Dana and Jeff and I would be there every time and Todd and, and John's involvement was sort of, he was sort of starting to pull away at the same time. Todd was getting offers to join Queensryche. And at first when he joined them, they didn't even know if they were going to call it Queensryche. They had talked about calling it rising force and something like that. that. And Todd was still fully in Crimson Glory at that time when he started playing with them and doing the first rising force gigs. And then, When the decision was made, he was actually going to be the singer of Queensrÿche. They were going to continue with the name Queensrÿche. He came and told us, you know, hey guys, you know, this opportunity is presenting itself. I really have to do it. And he was still saying, like, I'm going to do both bands. You know, I'm going to I'm going to do your new album, and I'm going to be with them too. I'm going to do both bands. And we were at first just kind of going, you know, okay, buddy, because we love Toddy. You know, he'd become a really good friend to us. And we didn't want to say, oh, fuck that. We're like, okay, Todd, let's see, let's see how it goes. But I think we kind of knew inside that he wasn't going to be able to do both bands. Right. You know, once they got going, they were going to tell him, Hey man, it's, you got to just do us, you know? Yeah, sure. Maybe the first month he was hanging around with them. They said, sure, you can be in both pants. <laughs> we, <laughs> we knew that we knew they weren't going to let that happen. Right. Yeah. And, 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 um, not once they really got going. So, you know, but it was also kind of two things. He was, he was getting lured into their camp and we knew that that was where he needed to go because it was a better opportunity for him. And also John just stopped coming and, and, and Todd sort of just told us he was quitting because of that reason. He didn't even say it was because I'm doing Queens Reich; I won't have time for it. He said, I'm quitting because, um, John isn't showing up to the writing sessions and it doesn't look like this is going anywhere. And, I've seen in a few Todd interviews where he's done where they've asked him about why he left Crimson. He singles John out and says, "John stopped coming."
0: Yeah, I've seen that too. I, you know, he
2: yeah. doesn't say anything about the rest of us. He no, just says, he doesn't.
0: He pulls no punches, and what, you know what? It, whatever it was, it was. It, it was. It was just interesting to me because I've really viewed him as like a savior for, for Crimson. Globe. Yeah,
2: yeah, he could have been, should have been, should have
0: yeah, absolutely, and. You know, while and, I, and
2: I we loved, all we all adored him, and we all still do. But you know, he he got a great opportunity, and it was a great path. No, for him I to mean, follow. A, de- a
0: decade later, he's he's resurrected and resuscitated that band entirely. So yeah,
2: yeah. Uh,
0: I, I, I deserve just, so
2: much praise.
0: Yeah. I was pulling for your band a little bit more than Queensryche at the time. So for me, I, I really wanted to see it work out. He did. You know us to take Queen's right well you know some people are
2: some people are passionate crimson fans it's kind of funny you say you're pulling for us more than them because um Todd you know after he joined Queen's right, he met a girl over in Greece and he married her that's his new love his wife and um he told me when he first met her she was a super huge crimson glory fan but not as much Queen's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now she's probably a huge Plain rykes fan too.
0: Right? Yeah. I mean, I and I yeah. love them too. It was just, but it I, was, think,
2: it, I think the Greeks love Crimson Glory. Every time we've ever been to Greece, they just really make us feel loved.
0: The Greeks do. And we're, we're hoping with this podcast, and now that we're on Apple and Spot, Spotify, that, uh, it, it goes worldwide because, uh, the Greeks, Germans, a lot of, you still have a big following of, of German fans. Um, I know a bunch of my friends in the UK are still very into you guys so even to this day if you know between you Jeff John if you ever got something back together again with the proper singer I think you would garner a lot of interest I really do
2: yeah yeah thanks for saying that probably so I'm not sure what the what that future may hold Not too much I could say about that,
0: right? No, I I get it. I just uh, there is still an incredible amount of uh, cult like interest in uh, Crimson Glory to this day, which is that that alone is as a member of the band has to give you a a lot of satisfaction.
2: Yes, it's nice. It's, It's it's very it's flattering for sure that people have held on to the love for the band for so long.
0: It was, it was definitely a different band for that era, which there were just so many bands and me and Mark. Yeah,
2: were, I, I wish we could have done that. more. I, th- I think we, we had the potential to, to go so much farther with it. And I'm, I'm thankful for the things we did do and the experiences we had because they were amazing, but we had potential to go farther and some of, some of the decision making along the way might have hindered us from uh, achieving that.
0: Uh, well, I, I you know. think especially with the later 80s going into the 90s, that there, there wasn't a follow-up of records and, and a commitment with record labels as you saw in the 70s where you saw great bands that started off that had potential that would end up doing five, six, seven, eight records with the label and you, you'd see the progression of that band. And Crimson Glory was, was one of many bands of that era that, Just didn't see that third, that proper third record, that proper fourth
2: record. No, And, and you know, a couple things play into that too. Like I said, you know, the John and the guys' decision to make so many changes right at that time didn't help. But but also the whole change and shift in the industry right in the beginning of the '90s. Sort of. I mean, even if we put out a third album that would have been a lot like Transcendence, I don't I don't know. We might have struggled to to make the 90s a good decade for us with all the, the old grunge movement that took hold.
0: Well, the thing with the grunge but movement was... I guess it probably could
2: have stayed tight in Europe. I, I
0: think that's what I was going to say. The thing with the grunge movement, it really was... It was, was more
2: American-based.
0: Exactly. That's what I was going to say. It was something that was a phenomena in, in the States that really only lasted about two, two and a half years. Yeah. But by 95, a lot of bands were getting signed by the Japanese labels. There was a big... A big outpouring of power, power metal, symphonic, power metal, uh, symphonic music, Prague, all getting signed on the German and Japanese labels by like 95, 96. So, like,
2: Yeah, actually, Dave and I had a band called Parish. We got signed in Japan for that. Well, that,
0: that's what I wanted to talk to you about. That was a, gr- I thought it was a terrific record. Uh, very oh, much late 80s sounding, but a, a little more, you know, Pushed in the modern direction, great. So, uh, the singer you had on that record was terrific. The songwriting was very strong, and that came out about what ninety-five-ish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So that kind of bears out my. And
2: it just came out in Japan and Europe. Right. We never had a state deal or anything. states deal.
0: But that's where I was going with it. By already by then, uh, the the music was coming back. It was really a, a United States phenomena. The the grunge, quote unquote.
2: Yeah. If we would have stuck through it throughout the '90s and just stuck to our guns and put out an album every two years and right. kept trying to progress in the same style and just get better every album, I mean, who knows? We could have been huge, you know, huger.
0: <laughs> huger, yeah, without what, what, a doubt. So, what what's going on with your current band, uh, Avenging Benji? We we just Benji. been turned on to them.
2: Um, well, we we have a, a new album that we it's not so new, but we've spent the last couple of years recording. And it's ready to go out. It's called Love Angel Sex Devil. It's pretty hard rock. It's not so like progressive metal as Crimson, but you hear some of the flavors in there and some of the songs that it's, you know, you can sort of tell that might be coming from me and that little Crimson flavor, but it's, it's more like a hard rock album. There's not a lot of keys or any too much uh, symphonic stuff, but we're real proud of it. It's a pretty cool record and we're going to, we're going to try to get that out right around the new, the new uh, year. January, February. We don't really know exactly which label yet, but I'm talking with a couple friends and a couple labels that might get behind it.
1: Now, who else is in that band? Uh, uh,
2: the drummer is Key Bland, and he's a 21-year-old guy. He's been playing with us since he was 14. He's wow. an amazing drum prodigy. Prodigy, excuse me. Um, the other guitar player's name is Borgie, and he's been playing with me for probably 15 years or so. He's been on a couple of my solo albums. He was on the Ben Jackson Group All Over You album that we did, and 05 um and he's another album the first avenging benji album we did was called golden dragons and it was come out in 010 and borgie was also on that so the, the new album we're getting ready to put out early next year is actually the second album for avenging benji okay. but this has all just been kind of a progression of me doing various solo things under different monikers now who's like, singing uh,
1: with uh with avenging benji
2: um i am i'm the lead singer oh okay yeah, on the you know after after the Astronomica album came out in '99, I put out one solo album called Ben Jackson. It wasn't called Bandering, just Ben Jackson. The album was called Here I Come, and I put that out in 2001. And then in 2000... that actually.
0: That's that's the one that you're on the cover with no shirt on. Yeah, right. And that's that, a good record.
2: That was it's just kind of record. me getting back to my roots of a lot yeah. of my influences from my growing up in '70s rock and classic mm-hmm. rock and. I just did something that was just kind of all me and just didn't think about trying to please anybody else. I'm just, I just I wrote some cool songs and put it out. And it was very classic rock influenced. Right. So that was 2001. And then in 2003 or so, I added Borgie on guitar and another singer, a girl named Rose Sexton, and the band got a little bigger. So instead of just me putting out another album, calling it Ben Jackson, we then called the, ben, the band, we called it Ben Jackson Group. And we put out an album in 05 called Ben Jackson Group, All Over You. And then a few years after that, um, I was writing more material for another Ben Jackson Group album with Borgie and stuff. And one day, just kind of on a joke, I just said, I'm thinking about changing the name from Ben Jackson Group to, to Avenging Benji. <laughs> and then, and, then, and somebody, I think it was my girlfriend at the time, or somebody said, I actually think that's kind of cool. You should. You know, I go, oh, really? I was just kind of kidding. <laughs> just a couple of people liked it. And even the guys in the band, like the other guitar player, they're like, yeah, I kind of like it better than Ben Jackson Group. And we're like, okay. So right. we changed the name to Avenging Benji. Well, so the name that were...
1: kind of makes you think. It's like, well, what does what does the band sound like? You know, it's like, it, yeah, it's yeah. not exactly metal sounding, but you know.
2: Right, right. So whether it's Ben Jackson or Ben Jackson Group or Avenging Benji, these are all just been, you know, albums I've made that kind of fall under the, the solo category of my life and recordings. Right. Even though, I, even though I have other members in the band, I feel like, you know, it's, it's, it's in a big way. It's kind of a solo project. A lot of it's coming from me. I'm the lead singer and the main writer. Right.
1: Well, I, I, is there anything, uh, I mean, you, you filled us in on everything. I mean, hopefully we see some new music from you uh, early next year, like you said. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I mean, I, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk
0: with us today.
2: Absolutely. You're welcome. I appreciate you guys uh, wanting to talk to me. It was a pleasure. Good time, good chat.
0: I could tell you the pleasure was all us. So yes, thank you. Thanks for making awesome the time. Guys. I really appreciate it. Ben. Awesome. Well, very good.
2: Good night. And all a right. Good we'll time. keep in touch. Very good meeting you guys. Same here. Keep Definitely. in touch, please do. Take Bye. care.
1: Thanks, man. All right. Take care.
2: Bye. Bye.